Why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And uh, as I was praying through and just talking with Jesus, honestly, about what, what he would have us here this morning, uh, especially following our, our series on the, the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit as well. Philippians chapter 4 is, is where I was led, in, uh, beginning in, in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It can be really difficult, if not downright impossible at times, to, to rejoice. And yet, as we learned last week in Josh's message on the fruit of the Spirit, joy is one element of the fruit of the Spirit. This singular fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, with, with multiple aspects to it, love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I think I'm missing one somewhere in there. Uh, joy is, is one of those aspects of that fruit of the Spirit. And as you, you read the New Testament, and specifically as you begin to look at the Apostle Paul and his writings on joy, what you quickly discover is that the way that Paul talks about joy in the Christian's life, he, he, he speaks of it as if it's a non-negotiable. It's not optional for a Christian. It's not that Christians either have joy or they don't have joy. It's that it's that if, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have seen Jesus Christ, he has entered into your heart and into your life by his Holy Spirit, if you have witnessed and experienced his love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his goodness, and his kindness towards you, then the natural outgrowing, what will naturally come forth out of your life and out of your heart will be fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I swear I'm missing one of those. Goodness, thank you. Ben, man, it's so good to see you up front. It's just like, like you're, you're like a comfort blanket or something like that. It's just good to see a familiar face. And you too, Sheila. Um, yeah, it, this is what naturally comes out of a, a, a person's life who is a follower of Jesus. And Paul is borrowing this imagery from Jesus himself, because in John 15, Jesus is talking to his followers, and he says this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. What's the fruit that Jesus is talking about? I mean, it took me forever to realize this. Uh, when, when I used to read this, 
I would just assume that he's talking about all these really awesome things that I was going to do for him once I become his follower. And it wasn't until I listened to another pastor teach on this passage here that he points out, and he's like, he's, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. If you abide in me, if my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit, love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness. And see, for Jesus, what will naturally grow out of a person's life, what will naturally come forth out of their heart when they spend time with him, when they, when they abide with him, literally, they, they make their home with him, they rest with him, they follow him, they obey his commandments, they are in relationship with him. What will naturally flow out of that person's life will be fruit. And he ends this, this section in John 15, in verse 11, by saying this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Hey, I'm saying this to you. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, rest in me, abide in me, walk with me, and I'm saying this to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Now, nothing robs a person of joy more than worries and anxieties. Nothing robs a Christian more of abiding and resting in Jesus Christ than worries and anxieties. And that's why in Matthew 13, Jesus shares this parable of the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking, he shares about this farmer who's going out and he's, he's sowing seed, he's scattering seed. And Jesus says that some of this seed, it falls on the road. And the birds come and they immediately pick it up and they, they swallow it and they eat it. it. It can't grow. Still, some of the seed, it falls onto this rocky, hard soil. And so its roots are unable to grow deep, and, and they're shallow. And so in the middle of the day when the sun comes out and it's blaring down, this plant, this tiny sapling, just withers and dies. It can't withstand it. Still others of the seed, it falls amongst the, these thorns and these weeds. And it shoots up pretty quickly. The sapling grows up. But eventually, what ends up happening is that the life is suffocated out of it by the thorns and the weeds. Still others of the seed, they fall down onto good soil, and they're able to take deep root, and they're able to grow up and become a, a good plant bearing much fruit. And in Matthew 13, verse 22, Jesus explains the meaning of this parable to his followers, and he says this, As for what was sown amongst thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So what causes the word to be unfruitful in a person's life, according to Jesus. 
the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Now, I'll summarize the, the cares of the world like this. This is a very broad, basic generalization, but I'll summarize it like this. Cares of the world. I have to have the right job. I have to have the right job so I can live in the right neighborhood. And I have to live in the right neighborhood so I can live in the right home. And I have to live in the right home so that I can be around the right neighbors. And I have to be around the right neighbors so that I have the right amount of influence. And I have to have the right amount of influence because that might actually directly affect my job. And I have to have the right job because the right job affords me the right paycheck. And the right paycheck affords me the right clothes. And the right clothes affords me the ability to have the right experiences in the right places at the right restaurants with the right people doing the right things. Cares of the world. Very broad. A, a younger, more common version of this, but it's, it's increasingly spanning all generations now, but I'll, I'll call it the cares of the digital world. And the cares of the digital world, I'll, I'll put them like this. I have to have the right experiences. I have to have the right experiences so that I can take the right photos. I have to take the right photos with the right filter on the right app so that I can make the right post at the right time to the right people to get the right amount of followers and the right amount of likes. <laughs> Richard, yes. Oh, man, I love it. <laughs> right? Our world is increasingly becoming more and more dominated by these cares. For some of us, we spend hours on social media, on Facebook, online, on Apple News, just scrolling through headlines, looking at posts, viewing pictures, scrolling through endlessly, and we look at them over and over and over again, and all it does within our hearts and in our lives is it just breeds more and more fear and anxiety. Amen. Yeah. Fear that I'm not good enough. Fear that I'm not pretty enough, that I'm not handsome enough, that I'm not in good enough shape. Fear that I'm not eating at the right restaurants. Fear that I'm going to be left out. Fear that I'm being intentionally left out. Fear that I'm not hanging out with the right people. Fear that I'm not eating at the right restaurant and more specifically, eating the right dish at the right restaurant. Fears, anxieties, worries, cares. And it's a wonder that the word proves to be unfruitful in our hearts and in our lives. And for some of us, the, we don't say this out loud, but the assumption might be this. The assumption is that the word proves to be unfruitful because it's powerless. It certainly can't be that we have allowed the soil of our heart to be so overgrown with weeds and thorns that we keep watering daily that it's suffocating the life out of the Word. And it will prove to be unfruitful. See, the person whose time and energy and attention is solely devoted to those cares, Jesus says, there's no fruit. That doesn't produce love, peace, 
patience, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and goodness. What that does produce, and what I've found in my own life, is that it produces envy, strife, jealousy, selfishness, selfish ambition, and sexual immorality, the works of the flesh. How many of you are gardeners? Anybody like a serious green thumb out here? Yeah? Christian, I saw that. Yeah, don't think just because you're visiting here that I can't see you, right? Yeah, I'm not much of a gardener myself. Uh, you guys are about to discover why right, right here. And it's because uh, I grew up in a small farming town just south of here in, called Canby, Oregon. Uh, it's in between Wilsonville and Aurora on I-5. And, and the summer of my sixth grade year, I worked at my buddy RJ's family farm. And this was an all-organic farm. This was before being all-organic was really hip and cool. Uh, they had all sorts of fruit, berries, apples. There were some sheep as well. And I remember very vividly, I, I would wake up early every single morning. I would ride my bike across town. He lived on the north side of town. I lived on the south side of town. And I would get to his house and very early in the morning, we'd meet in, in the, the kitchen, and on the dining room table, RJ's dad would have written out a list of four or five chores for us to do around the farm. And number one, at the very top of the list, always, for the entire summer, the very first thing at the top of the list was weed out the strawberry and the raspberry fields go down and pull weeds from the strawberry and the raspberry fields. And it was that summer and that experience that I came to a few very important realizations about my life and farming. <laughs> First, I, I never want to be a farmer. I, you know, you just kind of like, you know who you are, just Stay in your lane, that's not my bag. Okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. If I never move another irrigation pipe in my life again, I'll die a happy man. Uh, man. The second thing I learned was that weeds always grow. They always grow. And if you're going to pull weeds, what you need to do is you need to pull them by the root. You need to pull them all the way out. You can't half-step. You can't just grab the hoe and slice them off at the top. That's how you go back down to the strawberry and the raspberry fields and go pull more weeds for the entire summer. You know, bit of a lesson right there for a sixth grader. You have to pull them up by the root, by the root. Now, what do you do? What are you going to do if, if you want to have a poor garden with no fruit. What do you do? It's easy. It's, it's very easy. This is pro tip right here. Gardening 101. Nothing. Just don't do anything. Throw, throw the seed down, break the wrist, walk away. Right? Just let it grow. Just let it grow. Weeds, plants, all of it. Now, what do you need to do 
in order to have a, a good garden with good fruit. This is also easier said than done, but very simple. You have to wake up every single day and you have to go down to the strawberry and the raspberry fields and you have to pull weeds. You have to pull weeds. So, so this is what we're going to do. And we, you have to get the weeds by the root. So, so right now, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little gardening. And we've got to get these weeds by the root. So, so what's at the root? What are we actually talking about? And what are we getting at when we're talking about the right job and the right house and the right location, wearing the right clothes, doing the right things and the right experiences, making the right posts at the right time around the right sort of people? What, what, what are we getting at? What's at the root of that? Why do, why do I worry and care so much about those things? Well, there are a, a, couple, a couple of reasons. But, but really, ultimately, what we're getting at is we're, we're talking about safety and security, and we're talking about personal identity. And these three can get really interwoven together, especially in our culture. Safety and security. I, I, I want to live in the right neighborhood because the right neighborhood has a low crime rate. I want to have the right job because I want the security of knowing that the paycheck is coming in every month or every two months. And, and you know, there is something really comforting and really secure about knowing exactly down to the penny what the dollar amount is going to be. Safety and security. And I have to make the, these right posts at the right time and the right clothes. What we're getting at with that is how am I being perceived by the people around me? How do I look? What do people associate with, with me? And in our culture, very quickly, your, your earning potential and your ability to garner capital and, and wealth in your life becomes very quickly interwoven with our personal identities. This is why when we go to a, a social get-together, you don't really know a whole lot of people there. What's like one of the first questions that you end up talking about with a perf perfect stranger? Not who are you, where do you come from, what makes you tick, what do you do for a living? I, I, need to, I need to have that, that mental box. I need to be able to categorize that. And, and this is especially telling in, in our culture and in our society when we look at a few segments of our population. Little children, the elderly, stay-at-home moms or dads, and the physically or the, or the mentally disabled. Because what's their earning potential in the workforce? Where's their identity, according to our culture? Like, how can you quantify or qualify what they do or the importance of their existence? Our culture doesn't have a category for that. Cares of the world. 
Now, the, 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 the balancing act here is this. Is, is it bad or wrong to have a good job? No. Is it wrong to want to live in a good neighborhood? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to, to seek after safety and security? No. Those are very good things. In, in fact, for some of us, this sermon right here isn't really the, the, the sermon for you. For some of us, we need to hear the sermon on how good work actually is and how it is a really good thing to work 40 hours a week, to not sit around idly, to not have so much downtime just fiddling around, twiddling our thumbs, or being bored. But for some of us, we, we do need to hear that our ultimate safety and security and personal identity and our happiness does not rest in our abilities to control our circumstances and our situations. Our ultimate safety and security and identity rests in the goodness of Jesus Christ. This is why I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say in The Cost of Discipleship. In The Cost of Discipleship, he, he enters into a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus goes into the, this really well-known teaching on anxiety. Many of us know it, right? It, it, it's look at the birds of the air. They, they neither sow nor, nor reap, but your heavenly Father, he provides for them. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil, and yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of them. Are you not of more value to your heavenly Father than one of them? Do not be anxious. And in commentating on this, Bonhoeffer, he quotes Martin Luther, and this is what Martin Luther has to say. He says, Likewise, it is man's bounden duty to work and do things. It's a good thing for humanity to work and do things. And yet, withal, to know that it is another who nourishes him. It is not his own work, but the bounteous blessing of God. It is true that the bird doth neither sow nor reap, yet would she die of hunger if she flew not in search of food. But that she finds the same is not her work, but the goodness of God. For who put the food there that she might find it? For where God hath put not, none findeth, even though the whole world were to work itself to death in search thereof. It's a good word. See, our ultimate safety and security does not rest in our abilities to control our circumstances and our situations. It rests in the goodness of God. And that's why everything that we've been talking about here in Philippians chapter 4 hinges on verse 5. There's a very almost out of place. It makes this passage sound a little clunky when you read it. Phrase that Paul says. 
It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident amongst men. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. Now, it's, it, it's unclear. There are commentaries on, on both sides that are uncertain about how to interpret this phrase right here, the Lord is near. Does Paul mean rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I will say rejoice because the coming of the Lord is near? Or does he mean because the Lord is always near, do not be anxious about anything, but let your requests be made known to God? I tend to think it's a bit of both. There are commentators on both sides that arrive at, at different conclusions. Either way, I don't think it really makes a difference because either way, at the end of the day, what this comes down to is the fact that I don't think we actually believe it. I don't think that we actually believe that the Lord is near. I mean, think about it. On either side, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice because the coming of the Lord is near. If I actually believed that the coming of the Lord was near, would that change the way that I lived my life this last week? Would that change some of the, the conversations I had this week? Would that change what I did with my downtime this week? Or... Because the Lord is always near, do not be anxious about anything. If I actually believe that in my life and in my heart, that most certainly would probably change the way that I spoke to my wife and my children this week. It most certainly would change the way that I, I viewed what was going on in my work situation and the pressures that I was feeling there. See, for, for many of us, I, I think that we function uh, as practical atheists. Atheism, the, the belief that there is no God. And for many of us, we, we go about our day-to-day our -day lives as if there is no God, and certainly no good God. And so how this plays out is it plays out in a number of different ways, but two very broad examples would be this. I do have to worry about my children incessantly. I have to worry about them. I have to make sure that they're getting the right vitamins, eating the right food, that they're hanging out with the right kids, that they have the right teacher at the right school. I have to check in on them. When they're gone out of my sight, I, I lose sleep over it. I know he's 19, he's 20, he's 21, she's 21, but I still got to call in. I still got to double check and see if there's a pastor at this church that they've moved to that can watch out for my, my son or daughter. Because there is no God, and certainly no good God, who knows my child, who loves my child more than I ever could, who's going to watch over them and care for them the way that I could. 
You see, because there is no God, and certainly not a good God, I am justified in losing sleep over this deadline at work. I am justified in working long, long hours, and I'm especially justified in being short-tempered and snappy with my wife and my kids. Or my husband. Because there's no good God who's going to watch out for my family, who's going to take care of my family, who loves my family the way that I love my family and can can care for them the way that I can. And see, at the root of this, it is a very low view of God and his character and his goodness and a very high view of myself my character, and my abilities. And at the root of all of it, at the root of all of it is pride. We're talking about pride. And at the root of pride is one very deep-seated weed of a lie. It's a lie that has been told to humanity since the beginning of the age. It's a weed that cropped up in the Garden of Eden. It's Adam and Eve before the serpent, and it's the serpent saying, eat this. Here, take this. God knows that if you eat this, you will be like him. Take it. What's implicit in that? What is the serpent implying to Adam and Eve in that moment? God's holding out on you. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat this because he knows if you eat this, you'll be like him. And implicit in that is this fundamental lie. It's a straight-up, all-out lie. God's not good. God's not good. And when I believe that lie, and when that lie takes root in my heart and begins to grow and grow and grow, then like Adam and Eve, I am highly, highly motivated to reach out and seize for myself and take a hold of that fruit. I have to grab after it. I have to take control of my life. And as followers of Jesus Christ, We are called to wake up every single day to go down to the strawberry and the raspberry fields and pull that weed up. And we need to pull it up by the root. And the way that we pull that weed up by the root is we point to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we say, like Paul here, God is good. And how I know that God is good is because the Lord is near. 
See, fundamental and absolutely central to, to the Christian faith is the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. That the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. That God is so close to us that he would align himself, that he would experience total and full humanity just like us. And more than that, is that that God who will enter in and draw near and draw close to all of humanity, that God is a good God. He is a absolutely good God because he will give of himself selflessly. He will lay down his life for you and for me. This is how Paul writes about it in Romans 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is why our joy is not circumstantial. That is why our joy is eternal. And that is why our joy is relational. Our joy springs forth from the relationship and from the loving goodness and compassion and kindness of Jesus Christ. And we point to that and we wake up every single day and we pull the weeds up and we point to the cross of Jesus Christ and we say, God is good. He is good. And what Paul was saying here is that circumstances do not dictate our reality or our understanding of his love. If I lose my clothes, if I lose my job, if I lose my home, if I lose my health, it doesn't matter. That will not dictate my understanding of God's goodness towards me as seen in Jesus Christ. And that is the blessing of the Holy Spirit. The blessing of the Holy Spirit is not love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, gentleness, and goodness. I mean, those are blessings, but that's not the primary blessing. The primary blessing of the Holy Spirit is that the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and inside of us, that God is so near to us and so close to us and wants to be with us in everything, that he would indwell us with his Holy Spirit. That is so good. I have yet to be in a relationship with another human being that wants so much to be that close to me. My wife wants to be so close to me. So close to me. She wants to be so close to me. She wants to be closer to me than 
anyone else in this entire room, hands down bar none. And yet Jesus says that he is closer to me than a lover. And that's why Paul says here, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but with everything, in everything, down to the littlest detail of our lives, present your request before the Lord because that's how deeply he cares about us. That's how much he cares, down to the littlest detail. Jesus Christ loves us. He loves you and he loves me. And for some of us, we struggle with this. For some of us, anxiety and fear rules our lives. And it doesn't help that then we read here that this is a command, do not be anxious. And we are burdened with more guilt and more shame. And you're like, well, dang it. And what Paul and Scripture and what the cross of Jesus Christ shows us right here is that we serve a good and loving God who is a loving Father. And when he says, do not be anxious, this is a loving invitation. It's an invitation to come to him, to rest in him, the way that my, my 15-month-old son does. doesn't have a, a question or a doubt in his mind that I love him. I'll be doing who knows what. I'll be in the kitchen, I'll be working on something, and that little, that little sucker will just run over, and he just wants to give me a hug. He's a snuggler. And, oh, man, the Lord knew he knew, because my, my firstborn son, Curran, gosh, that kid, he won't, he won't stop for anyone. He, won't, he was never a snuggler. He's like, you know, three, month, three months old. Of course, they don't want to be around their dad at three months, but anyways, you know, he just wouldn't even let me hold him, and he still, you know, I have to like chase after him and just to bear hug him. But Towns, Towns, he, he'll just come over, and he'll jump up and he'll put his head into my chest. And that's what I love as a father. That's why I absolutely love. If I could live that moment, man, at least every minute <laughs> of every day, oh, my life, world would be a better place, you know? And I am convinced, I'm convinced that that is the way that the Lord views us. Amen. That is the way that he views you and me. And the invitation to pray is an invitation to humble ourselves, 
to let go of ourselves and to rest in Him and His goodness. And that's why Paul says, rest in Him. He says, present your request to Him, take it to Him, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.